please turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Ecclesiastes chapter 10 this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we come with a heart of joy this morning and thanksgiving. Thank you for your love for us, your consistent character and your promises. Thank you for the mercies that are new this morning. Thank you for the beautiful weather that we get to enjoy today. And God, would you come and speak to us in this area of wisdom and foolishness and allow us to grow in wisdom. So we invite you here in Jesus' name. Amen. So wisdom is to pay attention to the gaslight that comes on in your vehicle. I think I've probably ran out of gas five or six times, but I don't know for sure. It's been that many times. Because the gaslight comes on, and it's always a game for me of how much I can go before I run out of gas. I read the owner's manual, and I'm, I've got three gallons of gas, and I do the math, and all those types of things, but apparently my math's not very good because I run out of gas. But, however, my wife has never run out of gas in her driving career. Why? Because she responds to the gaslight. The gaslight goes on, and she's like, I better get to the gas station. And in all reality, she usually fills up before the gaslight ever comes on. Wisdom is knowledge applied. That's the definition of wisdom. So wisdom's not just knowing that your gas light's on. Wisdom is responding to it and taking the time to go fill up at the gas station. But foolishness knows that the gas light's on, but decides, I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm just going to motor on like nothing's going to happen. Jesus encouraged us to build our house upon the rock in the Sermon on the Mount. He gives to us teachings and he says, if you do these things, if you hear these things and you do this, you're like the person who builds his house upon the rock. But the fool builds his house upon the sand. So this theme of wisdom and folly runs throughout scripture. As Solomon gets closer to his conclusion at the end of the book in chapter 12, he's starting to steer the ship away from vanity meaningless pursuits, and more to wisdom and where we really do find the meaning of life. So let's begin our journey in verse 1 of chapter 10. Dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ointment and cause it to give off a foul odor. So does a little folly to one respected for wisdom and honor. Perfume, very valuable. Ointment, very valuable. So someone invests all of this money to buy the perfume to buy the oil and they open it up and there's a dead fly inside of it. And so instead of it smelling good, it smells terrible. And the illustration that Solomon gives to us is it just takes a little bit of compromise, it just takes a little bit of foolishness to ruin a reputation of wisdom, to ruin a reputation of character. The smell is similar to me when puke gets into a vehicle, right? How much puke does it take to ruin the smell of vehicle, right? No matter how hard you try, you really can't get that smell of puke out of the vehicle. You go into the garage and you're like, oh, man, something doesn't smell right. Your car sits out in the sun, oh, puke smell, right? And this is the idea. A little bit of leaven ruins the whole lump. A little bit of compromise, it really affects our characters. We're all one decision away. Isn't that humbling? 
foolishness and sin's always at our, our door. And just a little bit of sin, a little bit of foolishness can really ruin a lifetime that's been set aside for wisdom and honor. Verse two, a wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart is at his left. Is this some kind of political statement? What, what does this mean as we face midterms here? No, it's not a political statement. At this time when Solomon's writing, it was tradition that the right hand stood for strength and honor. And it was the left hand that was referred to as dishonor. This was so severe that we see the judge Ehud, that he was left-handed and he stands up against the king Eglon, was able to get into the king's presence because he had his dagger on the left side. No one even thought to check the left side because it was so customary that you would only use your, your right hand. He was the left-handed assassin that was able to go in and get Eglon uh, the king. So what this verse is telling us is that a wise man's heart is set in this direction of wisdom and honor. But then a fool's heart is set in the direction of foolishness, that wisdom and folly begins in the heart. Isn't that true? Solomon would also put it this way in Proverbs 4.23, to keep your heart or guard your heart above all things because out of it flows the issue of life. So this morning if we're saying, man, I want to walk in greater wisdom, it's going to happen in our hearts as we set our hearts apart to the Lord and to walk in his ways. Verse 3, even when a fool walks along the way, he lacks wisdom, and he shows everyone that he is a fool. Another way to put this is a fool is clearly seen. A fool advertises everywhere that he goes that he is foolish. And verse 4, if the spirit of a ruler rises against you, don't leave your post, for conciliation pacifies great offense. Conciliation is an action to bring peace or to pacify someone's anger. So if you have a ruler that is coming against you, which for us would probably be a boss, if the boss is all upset and coming down on you, stay your post, don't run away. Be faithful in what you're there to do and look for some type of action that can bring peace into the situation. And that can be hard to do. Don't panic, be meek, be wise, Try to bring wisdom to uh, the solution. Robert, our assistant pastor, he always says, if I want to help solve a problem, I can't be a problem. And that's really stuck with me over the years. If a problem is being brought uh, to me, if I get in a place where all of a sudden I'm acting in foolishness, I'm just adding to, to the difficulty. So here, maybe the boss is the one who's being the problem. The, the boss is the one who's starting to, to get upset is to stay in that place of, of peace and see how you can make peace. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for you shall be called the sons of God. I look a lot like my dad, so all growing up, it was like, oh, you're Glenn's son, you're Glenn's boy. If I wanna know what I'm gonna look like in my 60s, I just look at my dad and I go, that's exactly where I'm headed. When we make peace, we have the resemblance of our father. People are able to look at us and say, you are like your heavenly father. You'll be called the children of God. In verse five, there is an evil I've seen under the sun as an heir proceeding from the ruler. Solomon begins to describe the foolishness when it's in a position of authority. 
And he says, this is an evil that I've seen under the sun is that a, a ruler walks in error or a ruler walks in foolishness. Why this makes this difficult is because when someone's in a position of authority, it affects people's lives, doesn't it? And so their foolishness has a bigger price tag that's placed on it. In this reality of voting and, and elections, it's an interesting time in our, in our country and I would just encourage you to go ahead and take voting seriously. To say, man, God has given us the freedom to be able to vote. Is, is voting and political leaders the most important thing? I don't think so. I'm going to be really honest about that. I don't think that's the most important thing. I think Jesus is the most important thing. I think the gospel is the most important thing. But is it something that we should engage in because we want to be salt and light? Absolutely. So take the opportunity to vote, get informed, look at the candidates and the issues through the lens of scripture, because when a person is in authority, it affects the land, doesn't it? So whoever gets elected is going to impact our country, and a country's blessed when they have uh, godly leaders. Verse six, folly is set in great dignity while the rich sit in a lowly place. Solomon is processing wisdom and folly under the sun. He sees that sometimes foolishness gets set in great dignity in this life. And we've seen that, haven't we? Sometimes someone is, is very foolish. Maybe they even have a hard heart towards God. But society and culture sets them up in a place of uh, great dignity. In verse 7, I've seen servants on horses while princes walk on the ground like servants. This is the social order in reverse, and it bothers Solomon because he's the king. But for us, we would rejoice. For us, we'd go, hey, this is great because we're the little guy. And we're like, man, the servant's finally on the horse, and the prince is walking around like a servant. But to Solomon, this was disturbing to him. In verse 8, he who digs a pit will fall into it, and whoever breaks through a wall will be bitten by a serpent. He who digs a pit will fall into it. This is someone who is trying to bring destruction or damage in somebody else's life. We see a couple examples of scripture of this taking place. Haman in the book of Esther wanted to kill Mordecai and sets up these gallows and this scheme to try to have Mordecai hung upon the gallows. But what do we see taking place? Haman was the one that was hung on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, was thrown into a pit that had been prepared for him. But yet God protected him, sent an angel to close the mouth of the lions, and the men that set up this trap were ultimately the next day thrown into the lion's den by the king. The scripture says they were eaten by the lions before they even hit the ground, before they even fell on the ground. What's the lesson for us? Maybe someone's hurt you. Maybe someone has taken advantage of us. We want revenge. We start thinking about their destruction and their demise, preparing some type of pit or trap for them. No, let God be God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Let the Lord bring about justice. Choose mercy. God is, is merciful because what will happen if you try to set up a trap for someone else, then you're going to fall into the pit that you dug for them. The end of verse 8 is interesting. If you break through a wall, you'll be bitten by a serpent. What the message is there is the wall's there for a purpose. So don't break it down. And sometimes in life, we hit walls. We hit barriers. 
And we can push through those walls. We can break them down. We can get out the sledgehammer and say, you know, I'm going to push this wall down, but then it's only for our destruction. So trust those walls that are there. Trust those closed doors that are there. Sometimes God closes a door so tight that you can't open it. But a lot of times he closes the door in such a way where he's like, if you want to be stubborn and stupid, Eric, you can open this door. But I've made it clear to you that this door is closed. I, I'm not in this. I'm not leading. I'm not, not providing. But I want it. So, so I'm going to kick, kick the door down. But then I find that there's a serpent on, on the other side. So in many different facets of life, there's a wall. R- respect the wall. Don't, don't push through the wall. I love verse 9. It says, He who quarries stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits wood may be endangered by it. We find value and risk side by side. The value is, is the quarry provides a living to be able to quarry out those, those rocks. The firewood provides warmth. It's exactly what is needed to stay warm in a cold winter. But the risk is these quarries could endanger you. These rocks, as you are getting the rocks out of the mountains, could even cost you your life. On the west side of the city, the Red Rocks open space is an old quarry. And as you hike around there, it's fascinating to look at the the rocks and see where they cut these massive slabs out out of the mountain. I'm sure some guys got hurt doing that. Some people got hurt in that process, but they also had the reward of taking out these rocks. So there's many things in our lives that will involve value, but they'll also involve risk. And sometimes we don't want to take the risk. We go, man, the the danger of getting hurt by the rocks is too much. The danger of getting hurt by the axe is is too much, so I'm going to play it safe. But then we never get the reward. And by all means, do it in a way that's wise. Do it in a way that's safe, but take the risk when it's the right time to take the risk. Maybe there's a relationship that God's wanting you to pursue and there could be great value to be had, but you're like, man, the risk is is too much. Maybe there's a job that God wants you uh, to pursue, but it comes with a risk. It may be the exact step of faith that God's wanting us to take. Maybe there's someone that God is putting on our hearts to reach out to with the love of Jesus Christ and it involves some risk. It may not be safe. It may not work out well. There may be the fear of rejection, but it's worth it. And a lot of times God puts us in that place of saying, trust me, go ahead and take the risk and see what I would do. And does it always turn out? Does sometimes you get hurt in the quarry? Absolutely. Does sometimes you get hurt by the ax? Absolutely. But then other times you really see God move and work in a great way. Verse 10, if the ax is dull, and one doesn't sharpen the edge, then he must use more strength, but wisdom brings success. So the axe is dull, and one doesn't sharpen the edge. That's foolishness. But then someone else takes the time to sharpen the axe, and they're more effective with each swing. Wisdom brings success. So you can imagine someone working with the axe, chopping wood, and the axe gets dull, but they're going to have to take time to sharpen the axe. They're going to have to stop the work to be able to sharpen the axe. They say, I don't want to do that. That's too much work. Maybe I don't have the equipment. I've got to go somewhere else in town to sharpen the axe. Then the other person says, I'm going to slow down. I'm going to sharpen the axe. 
And in the long run, they're way more effective. When I do projects, they usually don't go too well. And a lot of times when I get in this moment in the project where something comes up that I didn't expect that is going to involve another trip to Home Depot, I don't want to take the time to go to Home Depot. I want to get this project done fast now. So I'll try to think my way some way around Jimmy rigging this so I don't have to go to Home Depot. Well, you know the results. Not so good, right? I have to say, okay, I got to sharpen the axe. I got to do this the right way, even if it's my fourth or fifth trip to Home Depot that day. Home Depot's great, but it's not great when you've seen it the third time that day, right? So let's apply this to our lives. Is there areas of our lives that need to be sharpened? Now, why is the axe dull? The axe is dull because it's being used. And you're being used. You're loving the Lord. You're serving the Lord. You're you're wanting to worship him in every facet of your life. And so because of that, over time, there's a dullness that takes place simply because you're being used just, just like the axe. So is there part of our relationship with God that could be used to be sharpened? Maybe it's gotten dull. And the Lord would want to bring a freshness, a sharp edge to that relationship. Maybe there's relationships that are very important to us in our family that have become dull. Is there a relationship with a mom or a dad or a brother or sister or a child or a spouse? You go, man, this is one of the most important relationships to me in my life, but because of busyness or distraction or maybe some hard feelings, there's some dullness that has started to take place. Maybe it's a spiritual gift that God has given to you. When we receive Christ as our Savior, he gave us spiritual gifts, and God wants to sharpen that gift. Maybe it's a skill that you use in your job, and you've done it so much for so long that it's second nature, but you know, you sense it's kind of dull. There's not a freshness there. Maybe some coworkers would say, you know, you're kind of dull. There's not a lot of passion when it comes to your job that you've been doing for a long time. But then how, how do we get sharpened? If we see the need to be sharpened, how, how does that process take place? I think to bring it before the Lord and say, God, I'm sensing that I'm dull here. I'm, I know that there's a dullness in this area of my life. And to start to look in the scripture, is there a, a promise from God's word or a challenge from God's word that would speak into that particular area. God's word's sharper than a two-edged sword. God's gonna use his word to sharpen us. God's also gonna use the body of Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, to sharpen us. Sometimes it, it may be someone's personality that rubs us wrong a little bit. That's God sharpening us. Maybe it's a brother or sister that loves us enough to challenge us. Say, you know, I'm going to care about you to speak truth into your life so that you can be a little bit sharper, you can be a little bit more effective. God will also use trials. He'll use circumstances. God doesn't waste anything. So there may be pain in our lives. We go, "Why, why is this continuing to be hard in my life? Why has God not allowed me to get out of this circumstance? It could be because God's wanting to use that to sharpen me. We need to surrender to the process of being sharpened and say, you know, it's worth it. 
I'm going to put myself in God's hands as God's instrument and say, even if this is painful, it's worthwhile. God, I want you to sharpen me. Because then the end result is you're more effective. The The end result is you don't have to use so much strength to chop the wood because there's a sharpness that's, that's about us. And that's the hard part for me. To say, I see the value of being sharpened, and I want to be sharpened, but I'm not sure I want the process. I'm not sure if I want the pain. And at least in my life, the sharpening or the sanctification or the growth seems to not happen until I surrender to it. Until I say, okay, Lord, instead of trying to get out of this, I'm going to say yes to what you want to do in my life. In verse 11, a serpent may bite when it's not charmed. The babbler is no different. So a snake, unless it's charmed, may bite you. And the fool or the babbler needs to be charmed at a certain point so they don't bite you. And this is kind of above our pride. You know, our pride says, look, you're being a fool. You're coming at me with all of these vain babblings, these vain words. I'm not going to try to charm you or pacify you or respond to you with meekness. I'm going to give you what you deserve, punch you in the face, right? It doesn't work out very well. Returning evil for evil results in more evil. How is this lived out in our daily lives? People are more and more angry on the road. Maybe you haven't done anything wrong, and someone just loses it and starts getting angry at you on the road. Man, that's hard. Everything inside of you is like, I'm going to teach this babbler a lesson, right? I'm not backing down to this. Someone needs to stand up to them. But then if you do that, all of a sudden it can escalate into a very dangerous situation. It may be time to charm them a little bit. It may be time to just pacify them and and let them go. It takes great wisdom and great self-control to realize I'm dealing with a babbler here and if I don't respond with some charm and some tact and some common sense, I'm going to get bit. So it's better to use some tact and not get bit. In verse 12, the words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool shall swallow him up. There's a focus in this section on our words, how wisdom responds in what we speak. That if we're wise, we're going to speak gracious words. Grace speaks in a way that's filled with kindness, that builds other people up. Grace is unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. As it is warming up to the World Series, there was a play this week uh, between the Astros and the Boston Red Sox. Altuva hits the ball, and it appears that it's going to be a home run. Here goes the Boston Red Sox player, and he jumps up over the fence. It's a seven-foot fence, and he's making a play on this home run. It's an important out. There's three fans, it's in Houston, Astro fans, and they reach out and they're looking up for the ball at the same time and the fans collide with the Red Sox player. They hit his mitt and interfere. What does the umpire do? He calls fan interference and it results in an out instead of a home run. The Astros win by two, the Boston Red Sox go on to get into the World Series. Now remember, this is in Houston, Texas. I think there was something like 47,000 fans there. How would you like to be that one fan that messed everything up for the Houston Astros? 
Like it would have been better for him to just back off, right? And see if the Red Sox player made the play or not. And Altuva was interviewed after the game and he had a gracious response. They asked him, what are your feelings towards this fan? And he kind of paused for a second. He says, I don't have any hard feelings towards this guy. If I were a fan, I'd be going for a souvenir as well, right? And we're in Houston, and, and we have hardcore fans here. And I was thinking, wow, what a gracious response, right? That could have been an easy moment for Altuva to express his frustration and go, I wish that guy just would have stayed out of the way, right? And you step back and you go, wow, gracious words really are effective, But then foolish words were swallowed up by them. They bring destruction in our lives. Our words flow out of our hearts. What are we treasuring in our hearts will eventually come out of our mouths. Verse 13, the words of his mouth begin with foolishness and the end of his talking is raving madness. We've all been there. I've been there. More often than I would like to admit, my heart's not in the right place. And I start off speaking in foolishness and I end in madness. It just goes and escalates, right? And usually the Holy Spirit's saying, you know, stop here. This would be a good place to stop. And most times our families are looking at us going, stop here. This would be a good place for you to stop, right? We all know that look from our spouse that's like, really, are you gonna do this, right? This would be a good time for you to stop, right? But then our our pride, our selfishness, our foolishness gets the best of us and we keep it going, we keep it going, we keep it going. And by the time we're done, we've, we've escalated it. And we're like, man, why did I do that? It would have been so much better to, to stop talking and not have it escalate to raving madness. In verse 14, a fool also multiplies words. No man knows what is to be. Who can tell what will be after him? Proverbs 10, 19 says, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. To be quick to hear and slow to speak and to slow to wrath. The labor of fools wearies them, for they do not know how to go to the city. Apparently, they don't know how to use Google Maps. Right? They haven't downloaded Waze app yet. What is verse 15 telling us? What is it declaring that there's a lack of direction? A fool doesn't have direction. They don't know where they're, they're going. And because of that, their labor is harder. Their work is harder. Even if a person's walking in wisdom, life is hard. But it's even more difficult when there's foolishness. Do we have direction? I think we can say yes as God's children. Do we know why we're here? Yes. God created me. He created me for relationship with him. He created me to love others and to share the, the message of Christ. But when we're in a place of foolishness, we lose direction. We don't know why we're here. We don't know where we're going. Verse 16, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. There were times in Israel's history where they would have a child as a king. And Solomon's saying this is not a good thing. Ultimately, he's pointing to when there's lack of maturity and leadership, it's not good for the land. Also, when those are in authority are feasting in the morning, they're partying in the morning, it's not good for the land. They're drunk by 10 a.m., they're probably not going to be making some great decisions. Verse 17, blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobles, and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for dr- drunkenness. So it benefits the land 
when the leader knows how to be able to celebrate appropriately and celebrate for strength and not for drunkenness. Verse 18, because of laziness, the building decays and through idleness of hands, the house leaks. So we picture a home, we picture a building. Why does it get to a place of decay? Why does it get to a place where it's leaking? Because of laziness and idleness is one of the reasons that Solomon points to here. It doesn't seem that they lacked the resources, the money to maintain the building. It doesn't seem that they lacked the time to be able to maintain the home, but it was an unwillingness to do the work. And in our lives, that's the case sometimes. We don't want to put in the work, and so there's areas of our lives that decay. There's areas of our lives that, that leak. The fool would look at a leak in the roof and say, ah, oh, it's not that bad. It doesn't rain that much in Colorado. We probably won't get that much snow this winter. I'll be fine. I'll just, I'll just not address it. I'm not going to deal with it. And the wise person looks at that and says, I've got to get that fixed. I don't, I don't want to spend money on that. I don't want to spend time, energy on that, but I, I've got to get that fixed. Is there a leak in our life? It's easy to ignore that dripping and going, ah, oh, it's not that big of a deal. It's really not going to catch up with me. It's not as bad as it, it used to be. My goodness, it's sure not as bad as my coworker, right? But wisdom then says, man, I've got to pay attention to this. There's a leak here. You know, there's decay here. Verse 19, a feast is made for laughter and wine makes merry, but money answers everything. This is the attitude of a foolish ruler. Don't take verse 19 as your mission statement for life, but money answers everything. If you just take one verse out of the Bible and you don't study it in context, you'll come out with the wrong meaning. As we've studied Ecclesiastes together, does money solve everything? Solomon's made it really clear that money, apart from a relationship with God, is emptiness and and vanity. Later on in Scripture, it tells us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So this is the expression of a, a foolish ruler. In verse 20, do not curse the king, even in your thought. Do not curse the rich, even in your bedroom. For a bird of the air may carry your voice, and a bird in flight may tell the matter. Something that was said over here in private that you never thought would reach the ears of the boss, of the person in authority. But somehow a little bird took your conversation right to the boss. A good principle in life, a good way to live in wisdom is, if I'm not going to tell this to their face, I probably shouldn't say it at all. Because it's probably going to end up in their ears over time anyway. So as we look at this chapter, we do see the value of wisdom, don't we? We go, man, there's some things here that are really going to be glorifying to God and be beneficial in my life. But oftentimes we fall short from this wisdom that we desire. We see the benefit of not having a dead fly in our character, a putrid smell in our character. We see the benefit of our words being gracious and learning how to restrain our lips But when the rubber meets the road, it's hard to do. And we oftentimes find ourselves falling short. And where Solomon is going to conclude is he's going to conclude with the relationship with God at the end of chapter 12. And as God gives us instructions, he also gives us the power to be able to live those out in and of himself. A relationship with God's not just a set of rules saying, 
Here's a moralistic perspective. Here's wisdom. You need to live out wisdom in your life. When we think of the gospel in just a moment as we celebrate communion together, the gospel declares to us that the penalty of sin has been paid for so that we could be forgiven. But also, the gospel tells to us that the power of sin is broken because we identify, we're unified with Christ's crucifixion. We're unified with his burial and his, his resurrection. It's Christ, it's our belief in Christ that empowers us to be able to live in a wise manner. Jesus made a powerful statement. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus didn't say that he was a way. He didn't say that he was a set of rules or a system of wisdom. He said, I am the way. Let's go back in time a few years to where my kids are little. Let's say one of them is two and a half years old, just potty trained. And they come up to me in the front of the sanctuary and say, Dad, I've got to go to the bathroom. When a two and a half year old has to go to the bathroom, they have to go to the bathroom. Especially at church when they're playing and hanging out with their, their friends. And what if I got on my knee and looked at my kids in the eye and said, okay, this is the game plan. You need to walk down this long aisle and you're going to come to some big wooden doors with some glass that are five times bigger than you. But turn the handle and push as hard as you can, and you're going to get to the foyer. Now, some people say foyer, but it's really foyer. <laughs> and, and once you're in the foyer, then you're going to take a right. You remember what your right hand is? Yeah, take, take your right and go down to the side. You'll find a, a little hallway. If you get to a narrow door, you've gone too far. There's going to be a drinking fountain, and then there's two restrooms. Now, you need to make sure you pick the right restroom, right? and explain to them the male, men and women restroom and go in there. How many of you think that they would actually make it successfully to the restroom? Not a chance, right? Now this is a risk, but what if I picked him up and put him on my shoulders? You get the risk at that point, right? <laughs> and we V-line it. We just, we just book it for the bathroom and I help them in this process of, of using the restroom. What's the difference? I've become the way. Now the first time, I described the way. I said, here, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to do in order to be successful. And I think a lot of times that's what we gain as an understanding of the Christian life. We hear a lot of teaching about wisdom. Say, this is what you need to do. This, this is the godly life that God wants you to live. And we we're like, right on. That's awesome. I, I want to live in that way. But we can't succeed. Because we're only going to succeed as we are in relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus says that he's the vine, and we can't do anything apart from him. We cannot bear fruit apart from him. So it's walking with him, it's trusting him, it's following his lead, it's saying, Jesus, you help me. You're asking me to, to live in this way, so will you empower me to be able to do it? I'm willing I see the air of my way. I'm ready to follow you. But Christ, it's got to be you in me. And that's when the power of the Holy Spirit becomes real in our lives, to walk in the Spirit. What does that mean? Live in the Spirit of God, to where the Spirit of God actually gets to lead us and, and guide us and direct us from the inside out to be able to live a life of wisdom. So as we take communion this morning, let's be reminded that 
the penalty of sin has been broken in our lives, but also that the power of sin has been broken. And there's actually hope for us this morning to live in a wise manner because Jesus is the way. So let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you're the way. We thank you that we don't have to just try to muster up more strength and try harder and do better, but to really be able to come to you, to walk with you, to rely upon you, that it's not by power or by might, but by your spirit. And as we take a few moments to reflect, Jesus, on your sacrifice, your death, your broken body, your resurrection, that it would be fresh to us this morning. And even as we spend time with you, that you would sharpen our souls as we look at those areas that have become dull, that through fellowship with you, that you would bring us back to life.